They all knew he was aboard the yacht when it exploded and sank. And everybody called his death an accident. That is, everybody except the corpse himself. He said it was murder. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Restless Day. It had been a long, hard Saturday night that topped off a long, rugged week. When I finally got to bed dog-tired at 5 a.m. Sunday morning, I was planning to stay there until I'd caught up in all the sleep I'd lost and gained a running head start on the coming week. And by three in the afternoon on the day of rest, I figured that job was only about half done. But whoever it was that started riding my doorbell had a different idea. I held out until the buzzer stopped, but it was only a change of tactics, so I gave up. All right, all right, I know when I'm licked. Just a minute. Thank heaven you're in, Mr. Marlowe. Hmm? I don't know what I'd have done otherwise. <coughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Here, read this. This story on the front page. What? No, down here. Oh, yacht explosion, death label accident, huh? Yes, yes. Oh. Mystery blast which destroyed the Rollins yacht at Santa Monica Friday night and in which Benjamin Rollins, noted cosmetics manufacturer, was killed was established today by police investigators as accidental. <coughs> Sorry, I spoke too much. That's all right. The explosion which shattered and sank the 50-foot pleasure boat was caused by a leaking fuel line. Rollins, known to be a chain smoker, is believed by witnesses to have continued on page seven. <laughs> Never mind, Marlowe. <laughs> I'll tell the rest. Yeah, think you'll make it? There are two frightening things wrong with that story. Well, go ahead. Frighten me. First, the explosion was no accident. That fuel line was repaired a week ago. Second, Ben Rollins was not killed. You're shaking my faith in the American press. How do you know all this? Because I am Benjamin Rollins. Yes, well, look, fella, you better dial 116 on the phone and tell the police all about it, Oh, huh? no, that's exactly what I can't do. Someone's tried to murder me. If they find out I'm still alive, I'll be a target for a second attempt. <coughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. I need two things right now. One, a cup of coffee. Would you like some? No, milk, if you please. My doctor insists. Okay, come on. The other's a good, solid explanation of why everybody thinks you were aboard that yacht. Well, first, they believe my body was lost in the explosion. You see, I intended to spend the night there because Lucille, my wife, and I had quarreled. Mm -hmm. But I got a call, and I had to go out of town on business at the last minute. I went out to the boat, but only to pick up some papers. I was in a hurry. I must have left the lights on. I lost my hat in the wind on the way back. <coughs> it was found. It was found in the water. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't secure the dinghy because that was a drift offshore. Mind you, I read all this in the paper when I got back this morning. Back from where? Phoenix. Arizona. Figures. I came in on the California Limited. You can check on that. Marlowe, I must know who tried to kill me before they know they've failed. Uh-huh. That could be tough. Have you got any ideas? Yes, I have. It might be any one of three people. Three? For instance, Walter Pittman, my ex-partner, threatened to kill me less than a month ago in New York when I won another court decision from him. Mm -hmm. Then there's my business manager, a fellow named Slater. I almost fired him last week, the arrogant fool. <coughs> it's always when I get cross this country. Yeah, I see. So, and I'm sorry to say it, but... Mrs. Rollins Husk would no doubt rather have me dead than alive. <laughs> That's quite a lineup for a mere cosmetics chemist, isn't it? Yes, it is. Look, you haven't been running lipstick experiments with somebody else's live equipment, have you, Rollins? Mm? Oh, certainly not. I've been working so hard I haven't time for my wife. <coughs> to say nothing of another woman. Oh, Marlowe, I'm frightened. I must get to the bottom of this. I'll pay you double your usual fee. Will you help me? Okay, Rollins, it's a deal. If I hurry, I might get in on your funeral. Under the circumstances, that should make somebody due for a very big surprise. A shave and a shower later, and I checked my wheezing client's credentials, settled him down in my apartment with orders to answer the phone, but not the door, and drove out to Santa Monica where the not-very-late Ben Rollins had made his home. I had a list of names, addresses, and phone numbers of people close to Rollins. That is, close enough to kill. And I decided that Arthur Slater, the business manager, was my best bet for an opener. He had been described as soft-spoken, efficient, and somewhat arrogant. 
And after I found his cottage on Seaview Drive and walked up to the door, I heard someone inside offering a similar description, but with more color. Mighty routine, Arthur Slater. If you think for two minutes you could throw little Angie over any time you feel like it, after all the promises you've made, you're wrong. That's just about enough, Angie. Not by half, brother. I know which way the wind is blowing, and it's a nice big wind. Nobody kicks me out, and I mean nobody. So think it over, Mr. Big. Get out of my way. Yes, ma'am. Cute kid, friend of yours, Slater. Who are you? Another insurance investigator? That's right. My name's Marlowe. May I come in? Yes, yeah, certainly. All the others did. Thanks. Who knows? I may be the last. Slater, I've got three reasons for believing that yacht explosion was no accident. Not an accident? What reasons are you talking about? For one, Walter Pittman. Pit- Pittman? You mean Rollins' ex-partner? You know him, huh? Well, only by name. I never met the man. All right, then. Let's talk about reason number two, Lucille Rollins. How do you feel about it, Slater? Well, you must be out of your mind, Marlowe. She and Ben fought constantly, yes. Slater, I asked how you felt about Mrs. Rollins. I don't like her. And now, what or who is reason number three? You are. You had an argument with Rollins last week. He practically fired you. And you think I'd kill him over that? Could be. Look, Marlowe, Ben Rollins drove himself like an overloaded truck. He had a cigarette cough, nervous shakes, and bad dreams. To me, bureau drawer eyelashes and glue-on fingernails simply aren't that important. So we had frequent arguments. Now, do you have any more smart reasons you'd like to discuss, or would you care to leave? Just one thing more. Why does your girlfriend think you're a little stuck up these days? You're becoming a bit too personal, Marlowe. Get out. I'm not compelled to answer any of your questions. There's an established legal procedure... Skip it, Slater. If I need to, I'll be back. And I'm fairly chummy with the boys in blue myself, so I'll get the answers if I want them. Good night, big shot. Arthur Slater was like a billiard ball, hard to rub the wrong way. And if he did have an angle, he was playing cagey. So as long as I was in the neighborhood and the trail was hot, I figured I'd have a talk with the Spitfire, Angie. It wasn't hard to trail her. A corner newsboy had heard her get into a cab. The cabbie swore he'd never forget her. Swore again. So finding her apartment was less trouble than unfolding a $5 bill. When I pulled up across the street from a place, I noticed a big car as big as the average garage and older than last year's college graduate parked in front. It was a black Pierce Arrow and someone with a mouthful of cigar hooked behind the wheel. The cigar was pointed at me as I crossed the street. And when I went up the stairs to Angie's door, it was still pointed at me. But I forgot about that when the apartment door opened. Angie was relaxed. There were little glints of gold in her green eyes. And the warm lights behind her shimmered on soft waves of hair, a shade of burnished copper. Maybe she was a spitfire, but at the moment, her damper was down. Yes. Well, Buster, you got your mouth open. You might as well say something. Uh, Angie, who do you think murdered Ben Rollins? Murdered? My mistake, chum. Good night. Just a minute. This is business, honey. Who are you, anyhow? Philip Marlowe. You ran over me on your way out of Slater's place a few minutes ago and dented my ego. Well, sue me. Who are you working for, Shamus? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. But I will tell you this, sweetheart. The explosion on that yacht was no accident. So I'm checking up on wives who'd rather be widows. Lucille Rawlins? Mm -hmm. Nuts. She was rolling in dough either way. She hated her job, but she sure didn't have to kill to quit. Get your compass fixed, Marlowe. Wrong way, huh? Well, suppose Lucille were in love with uh, Pittman, maybe. Pittman? Who's he? Shot in the dark. Tell me something, Angie. Your boyfriend Slater has picked up a lot of push lately. How come? Some big deal they've been working on at the plant. And he makes me sick. Gets the first sniff of a success, and suddenly all his hats are too small. Especially his old hats, honey. And you can't blame the guy if he's really on his way up now, can you? Listen, Mac, I'll tell you, him, and the whole world something. Nobody is going to put little Angie on the skids. If there's a heave-ho pulled around here, Mr. Hotshot Slater himself will get it. And right in the neck. So if you happen to be snooping for him, Marlowe, you can putter right back and tell him so. Now beat it. That's not a bad idea. Oh, by the way, what's Angie stand for? Angelica. But don't count on it, brother. Don't count on it. As I went down the front steps, the cigar and the black Pierce Harrow lined up on me again and followed me as I crossed the street and got into my car. It was still pointing at me as I drove away, but after all, the street was public property and the guy could smoke a cigar if he wanted to. 
Well, by the time I knocked on the front door of the Rollins home, I was braced for a deluge of tears and a session of red-eyed hysteria. So I was caught off balance by the handsome blonde woman of 35 with a wry, crisp waistline who was cool, calm, and well-collected in green slacks. She introduced herself as Lucille Rollins. Sit down, Mr. Marlowe. You said you're a friend of Ben's? That's right, Mrs. Rollins. I stopped by to offer my condolences. But apparently condolences aren't much in order today. No tears, huh? Not even crocodile tears. I'm not a hypocrite, Mr. Marlowe, that's why. I'm merely stunned and confused over this terrible accident, and I'm not sure yet how I feel. Yeah, it was an accident, all right. Especially since that leaky fuel line that caused it was repaired a week ago. It had been repaired? Oh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Who are you, Marlowe? I'm a private detective, and I know a lot more than that. I know, for instance, that the insurance on the boat alone will keep you and pretty doodads for several years. And that's only a drop in a bucket. Mr. Marlowe, I think you'd better leave. And I think you'd better climb down off that high horse and listen. Because I haven't even started yet. Ben was a hated man by Pittman, by Slater, and maybe by you. And I can prove he didn't die accidentally, baby, so I'd like some nice straight answers, huh? When did you see Pittman last? I've never seen Walter Pittman. I don't even know what he looks like. Ben and I were married two years ago. He broke with Pittman long before that. But you're pretty chummy with Arthur Slater. That's a lie. Why, we hardly spoke until a week ago. You picked a poor time to get friendly, baby. Listen here, Marlowe. Arthur, Mr. Slater, I ran into each other purely by accident one afternoon last week. I happened to stop in at a small bar in downtown Los Angeles. Mr. Slater was there at a table talking with some man, a stranger to me. When he saw me, he came over. He seemed upset. So upset. Wait a minute. Is there anyone else here now? Well, no. My maid went out to the movies. I heard something, a noise. Sounded like it came from the service, boys. Come on, let's have a look. Well, I don't know what any of it. Hey! The lights went off. Somebody turned them off. You better... Lucille, look out! (laughs) Bullets which had been intended for Lucille had only traveled the width of the kitchen, but miraculously both had missed. Whoever had thrown them moved out fast, because when I got through the service, boys, and into the backyard, nothing stirred, except the restless ends of a pepper tree. But a second later, a heavy, clanking motor roared on the side street. And I got to the fence just in time to see a boxcar on rubber tires skid around the corner. It was a black Pierce Arrow. I went back to the house, found the master switch, and turned on the lights. Lucille, her face strained and bloodless, stood in the kitchen door and watched me. A hole had been punched in the back screen door, and on the floor was a strange object which had been used to unhook the lock. It looked like an oversized bobby pin wearing rubber pants, which didn't mean a thing to me. But to Lucille, who stared at it like it was a centipede she just found in a cream puff, it meant plenty. Ben. What? It's like Ben himself was here. Like he wasn't killed at all. What are you talking about? What is this thing, anyway? I... I don't know. Part of some new invention he was working on. For the last month, Ben carried two or three of these things with him everywhere. Look, Lucille, where's your phone? Right there. Oh. But, Marlowe, you... You don't suppose... Who are you going to call? friend of mine. He'd better be in, too. Oh, Marlowe. What's the matter? Marlowe busy? Yeah, yeah, busy. He's either talking to someone or he's gone out after leaving the phone off the hook. And either way, Lucy, that makes my friend very busy. just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, it may have taken a little detective work finding a much-wanted man last week, but an unprecedented number of listeners seem to have turned Philip Marlowe, for Jack Benny's largest audience this season found him here on his opening show on CBS. Tomorrow night, Jack will be back with Mary, Dennis, Phil, Rochester, and Don for more of the fun that's made The Jack Benny Show the number one comedy in radio. You'll find him right here on CBS every Sunday at 7 Eastern Standard Time. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Restless Day. When I left Lucille Rollins, the feminine target for tonight, I headed for Angie Gordon's where I'd first seen the man with a cigar in his face who I suddenly figured might be Walter Pittman. And as I drove, I felt like my brains had spent the night playing leapfrog in a squirrel cage. 
Because any way I call the dice, every one of my clients suspected of murdering him somebody else. And just to keep things from making any sense at all, I suspected my client. I pulled up near Angie's and saw the Pierce Arrow parked, lights and a man with cigar out. When I got close to the bungalow door, I knew that the lady was at home. Now look here, and that she was receiving oh, a gentleman here, caller, more or less. Tell me your name is Smith, which incidentally I don't believe. And then you start asking a lot of very personal questions. How cozy. Now please, you do not understand. There are certain things about the death of Ben Hollins that I must know. Things that mean a lot to me. How much a lot? Well, a hundred dollars, maybe. What? Now, don't tell me that's all you could stuff into that briefcase there in your hand. Listen, girl, I I must know whether that explosion on the boat was an accident or not. The police let it go as an accident? Never mind that. You are Slater's girl. You must know something about him as well as the other one who was here. Now, you tell me. Quick. Stay away from me, you big lug. I don't know anything. Let Let go of me. You heard the lady, Pittman. Let go. How do you know my name? I read tea leaves. And while we're all asking questions, do you mind telling me why you were throwing bullets at the chinaware on Mrs. Rollins? I did no such thing. I don't even know Mrs. Rollins. You're a liar, and it's dull as the sauerkraut. The gun in your pocket will prove it. I, I have no gun in my pocket. Here. Here, look for yourself. All right, I will. But if it's all the same to you, I'll start with your briefcase. Well, give me that. Why? So you can get to the gun first? No, because I... Uh, all right. All right, Mr. Smart Man. Go ahead and look. See for yourself that there's absolutely nothing there that concerns you. And don't look so astonished, friend. It's called a gun. Why, you little... Uh, 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 skip it, Marlowe. It isn't my idea of returning a favor, but it it is good business. You see, baby, little Angie sells out to the highest bidder. And no matter how I add things up, that isn't you. So exit Pittman, huh? Briefcase and... What are you staring at? That. That little gadget there. Must have fallen out of Pittman's briefcase. Uh, What is it? Twin brother of an item I found a little while ago, rubber pants included. What are you talking about, Marlo? Nothing, baby. Just tell me how long I sit here. <laughs> as long as you like. Now, you see, Marlo, I just can't afford to let you get to Pittman ahead of me. Yeah. That good business you were talking about. Uh huh. After all, a gal's got to make a living. One way or another, Marlo. Doesn't she? There was room to debate Angie's point, but no time. So I skipped her invitation for a drink. Both promised and threatened to see her again and headed for my car in the only direction left, the residence of the local pivot man, Mr. Arthur Slater. When I got to within a block of the place, I parked and then approached slowly, keeping to the shadows all the way. But the house turned out to be as dark and quiet as the inside of a coffin. I was about to leave when some noise a dozen yards behind me said that I was no longer alone. I turned quietly and got ready for what I figured would be a reunion with my old buddy, Walter Pittman. But I was wrong. Sneaking through a nearby clump of orange trees with all the deftness of an ox with bunion trouble was no one else but my client, Ben Rollins. When I called his name out loud, he ran toward me, arms and legs flailing the wind like a Kansas scarecrow caught in a tornado. Hello. Marlowe, I've been looking all over for you. Rollins, why aren't you back in my apartment where you're supposed to be? I couldn't wait any longer. I was afraid something had happened to you. When you didn't call, I was sure of it. I thought you might be here at Slater's. But I did call, and all I got was a busy signal. Oh, about an hour ago. Why, that was a friend of yours. He wanted to know if you'd play cards with him tonight. (laughs) Now, do you believe me? Now, for the time being, yes. Incidentally, Rollins, do these mean anything to you, these oversized bobby pins? (gasps) Good Lord, the curlers... Where did you get those curlers, Marlowe? They should be in my safe. Well, I found one at your house and the other in a briefcase that belonged to Walter Pittman. Pittman? But, Marlowe, these are samples of my newest invention, these hair curlers. They can produce a home permanent wave overnight that will last for six months. <laughs> it's, it's worth millions to me. If you live. Yes. Now, it should be easy to figure out who wanted to kill me. I'm not so sure. If you didn't even know these were missing... Why should someone have to kill you to get hold of them? And second of all, how come the shooting's still going on? What shooting are you talking about? Over at your place. Somebody tried to kill your wife there just before I called you. And that brings us right back to your alibi about talking to Ibarra at the time. It's a little too pat, Rollins. 
Besides, that curler could very easily have dropped out of your pocket. But why should I shoot at Lucille? For the best reason in the books, you wanted to kill her. And when that yacht business almost boomeranged on you, you still hadn't changed your mind. But... And that led to this whole routine with me double-billed as Patsy and star witness both. Well, you're out of your mind, Marlowe. I couldn't have set that explosion on the yacht as a trap for Lucille. Why not? Because it was on account of me that Lucille wasn't on the yacht herself that night. What? After we argued, we decided not to spend any more time under the same roof. Lucille said that suited her fine and she'd sleep on the yacht. We let it go at that till about noon on Friday. And you got small about things and said the yacht was yours, maybe? That you'd sleep on it? Uh, yes. I was just bickering. Just a minute, Rollins. I've heard enough, and I think I finally understand this whole screwy deal. I'll know for sure just as soon as I can make one single phone call to your house. We'll get back to Slater. Come on. When I got to a telephone and threw to the maid at the Rollins place, I was almost positive that in another minute I'd have both a solid answer for my client and a couple of clumsy customers for the law. When the shaky voice at the other end of the tube told me that Lucille had just left the house in high gear, after mumbling something about a place called Inspiration Point, I stopped being confident and started to worry. And when I tossed the jackpot question at the maid and got the winning answer, that worry became something worse, and it must have showed. What is it, Marlowe? What did you find out? Too much to explain now. Where's Inspiration Point, Rollins? About a mile south of here, mm-hmm. straight along the shore. Good. What kind of a car does your wife drive? A blue Nash. What's Inspiration Point got to do with Lucille, Marlowe? Everything. Now, look. You call the cops and tell them to get out there as fast as they can. Do you get me? As fast as they can. Inspiration Point turned out to be an acre of windswept rock that overlooked the cold January sea. After I saw Lucille's empty car, I crept, staggered, and fell down the narrow winding trail that led from the road to the promontory itself. I was afraid that I was going to be too late to stop what I was sure was a hastily scheduled murder. But a minute later, when I rounded the last crazy turn in the trail, I felt better. Because standing only a couple of yards away from me, her hair slapping wildly against the upturned collar of her coat, and very much alive was Lucille Rollins. I was about to breathe a sigh of relief when suddenly I caught the expression in her eyes. I turned to follow the line of her unblinking gaze, and I knew that I hadn't arrived any too soon. Because the lady was being held at the point of a gun. A gun held by Arthur Slater. I closed my hand tight around the cold thirty-eight in my pocket and moved closer. When you called me at the house, you said that my husband was alive and with you. Why did you lie to me? Because I knew that would bring you running. And I had to be alone with you, Lucille, so I could do what I missed doing last time. Last time? You mean the yacht? You did that? Yes. But somehow or other, Ben was out there instead of you. So that accident was a waste of time. But this one... The bereaved wife who jumped or fell to her death from the edge of Inspiration Point won't be. But why, Slater? Why do you want to kill me? There's no time to explain, Lucille. And we'll take time, Slater. Marlow, you... Damn me! Don't you... Marlow! Marlow, he's going to kill me. Yes, honey, I know. He had to. But why, Marlow? Why? Because he stole your husband's invention to sell the wall of Pittman. He was going to go into business with him. But now when the cops get here, he's going first to a hospital and then to jail. A grand larceny and attempted murder. Attempted murder? What about Ben, Marlowe? Ben was a near miss, honey, nothing more. You'll see what I mean in a minute. When Lucille found out that Ben was still alive, there were a lot of tears and promises to be good from both parties. And it wasn't until an hour had gone by and the police had already booked both Slater and Pittman, who was picked up heading back for L.A., that Mr. and Mrs. Rollins were in the condition to sit down and talk things over, even with the help of coffee and cigarettes in the Rollins' home. Then the whole scheme, Marla, was designed by Slater, who, as my business manager, had access to the new curlers. That's right. Knowing how Walter Pittman felt about you, Slater secretly contacted him to handle the manufacturing end, you see? <laughs> yes, I see. Hmm. Well, a few changes in the design, and the whole thing would have been patented and on the market while you and Slater... Who pretended that Pittman was a stranger to him. Uh-huh. We're still laboring away at last-minute changes. And when we learned about Pittman's product, Slater would act as surprised as Ben here. Uh, you're so right, Lucille. That was the plan. <laughs> oh, but it fell apart. 
See, it fell apart when you accidentally ran into Slater in that small bar in downtown L.A., do you remember? Yes. When he was with Pittman, the man you described to me as the stranger? Yes, of course. All right. Well, he realized then that with Pittman's product a success, you would sooner or later see a picture of Pittman, the newly rich inventor, and recognize him as the man you saw with Slater before Pittman's product was on the market. So that meant that Slater either had to get rid of Lucy or give up his entire plan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Have you got a match, Mr. Mupp? No. No, I'm going to give them up. But Marlowe, was Pittman involved in the murder attempt, too? No, no, no. He drew the line at the theft. See, when he found out that you had died mysteriously, he turned up here to check on Slater because he couldn't afford to be mixed up in your murder. I see. But how did you figure all this, Marlowe? Well, after I had tangled with everybody, I was no place. Angie Gordon was looking for an angle. You, Lucille, were getting shot at. Poor darling. Yeah, and Pittman and Slater were not on the same team. At least as far as the business on the yacht was concerned. Nobody seemed to have a clear-cut motive. But when I told you that Lucille herself was supposed to stay on the yacht that night, you had the answer. That was the time. After I called your house and asked the maid the jackpot question, which was, who aside from you, Ben, knew that Lucille was going to sleep on the yacht Friday night? She said Slater, didn't she? Yeah. Said something else, too. She also said that you had left for Inspiration Point in a big hurry. Yes. Then Slater tried to kill me first on the yacht... Second in the house here and finally out on the point. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it worked out fine, darling. Because the third time was the charm. <laughs> For us. Well, by the time I was through tying in all the loose ends for my client and his wife, it was three o'clock in the morning, and I was dog-tired all over again. When I got into my car and started away from the place, Ben and Lucille were standing in the doorway waving at me and smiling. So as I drove back toward L.A., I forgot about the sleep I was missing and thought about them. A couple who couldn't get along until one or the other of them had been robbed, dynamited, and shot at. I guess it's really so. As the old bromide has it, the path of true love never does run smooth. Uh, smoothly. It's smooth. Hmm. Oh, well. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Lorette Philbrandt, Edgar Barrier, Virginia Gregg, John Daner, and Jack Moyles. The special music was by Richard Arunt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... Somewhere in the cold, persistent rain that made the city itself seem a thing of evil, a girl had disappeared, and it was my job to find her. But before I did, I found death and a devil. The Jack Benny shows on CBS Sundays at 7. Eastern Standard Time, and comes right in the middle of 90 minutes of wonderful comedy on CBS's new early Sunday evening lineup. Immediately preceding Jack's show, you'll find Spike Jones and a Spotlight Review at 6.30 Eastern Time. And following the Benny Show, Amos and Andy take over with their inspired humor. Listen to Spike Jones and Amos and Andy over most of these same CBS stations tomorrow, flanking Jack Benny. They add up to 90 solid minutes of merry Sunday listening on CBS. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Somewhere in the cold, persistent rain that made the city itself seem a thing of evil, a girl had disappeared, and it was my job to find her. But before I did, I found death and a devil. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Black Halo. For three days, an ugly storm had lashed at the west coast from northern Oregon to the tip of lower California. And although it was only noon when I drove up to the sprawling red brick house just south of Santa Barbara to meet a new client of mine, the black that was in the sky and the driving rain that was everywhere left the day bleak and wet and cold. Left it the kind of day that made you feel that logs blazing in a fireplace and a warm, dry robe were the only things that could matter to anyone. But when I got inside the house, Felix Drum, 350 uncomfortable pounds of executive in a wheelchair who made his living importing perfumes, was very worried. And not about the weather outside. Marlowe, Julia Perry is gone. I want you to find her and bring her back. And the sooner you do that, the better. And the more I know, Mr. Drum, the easier it'll be. Exactly who is Julia Perry? My assistant. Very capable girl, who in the past six months has practically taken over my entire business. She handles most of the work from her cottage here on the grounds where she lives. Mm -hmm. She also has some little cubbyhole in Los Angeles where she keeps her files and some sample stock. Do you have the address of that cubbyhole? If I knew the answer to everything, I wouldn't have hired you. And anyway, it isn't important. Uh, uh, hand me that little bottle. This one? Please. Yes. No, here. Thank you. Mm. <coughs> mm. Uh... When did you last see Julia, Mr. Drum? Three days ago. No. Oh. <coughs> it was three days ago. When she left on one of her regular weekly trips down to Los Angeles to bid on perfumes. Usually she stayed away overnight, but the Beechwood Plaza Hotel most of the time. And she was back here by noon the next day. I suppose you've already checked the Beechwood Plaza, huh? Yes, of course. My man Ruby, the one who showed you in, has called the place a dozen times. But they only know that Julia registered there three days ago and hasn't been seen since. Well, what about the girl herself, Mr. Drum? I mean, her background, friends, family, that sort of thing. Yeah, as far as I know, Marlowe, Julia has no friends, no family either. She's just a sweet but smart little girl from someplace in Kansas. Mm -hmm. No bows, not even nice ones, huh? I don't think she had the time. You see, when Julia first came to work for me, she wanted to get ahead, and I gave her the chance. She made good. Mm-hmm. Today, she's as much my right arm as Ruby is my leg. Mr. Drum, did you notice anything unusual about Julia's behavior lately? Yes, and that's the reason I'm worried. About 
two weeks ago. I saw changes in the girl, Marlowe. She seemed less spry, more preoccupied. Oh? Yes. I figured it was overwork myself, since the end of the year always means detailed annual reports. So I made no comment at the time. I see. Tell me, Mr. Drum, what does she look like? Well, I have no pictures, but she's a blonde of medium height and was wearing a plaid raincoat and a little circle of a hat when she left. Uh-huh. Altogether, she's sweet and simple, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Do you mind if I stop in at a cottage on my way out? Um, Marlowe, you turn the place inside out if it'll help any. Only since I'm certain that Julia's in some kind of bad trouble, you be quick and find her. Julia Perry's cottage was strictly the 50-50 arrangement that Drum had mentioned, with one room office and the other living quarters. In the office, I found everything in its proper place, so I moved to the other room. The moment I stepped over the threshold, the white fluff that trimmed the quilted bedspread and the splash of color in the drapes said that Julia Perry had to be something soft and warm. The half a dozen quietly tailored suits that were lined up in the closet like, like a squad of soldiers facing right told me that she was also simple and neat. I ran through the pockets of her clothes and all the drawers and closets in the room, trying to find something that would give me a lead that I was sure I had to have. After 20 minutes, I'd found only a leather cigarette case, a package of peppermint lifesavers, and a maroon and gold monogram book of matches, the cover of which was half torn off so that I could only be certain that the middle initial was a V and that an E or an F were on either end. But since the name and address of an L.A. novelty company was on the inside, I bought the matches as a starting point. Dropped them into my pocket and headed for the door. When I opened it, I was surprised to find Ruby, Drum's right-hand man, purple scar and all, standing in the rain. He was staring at me like my ears were spinning. You seem to be a very thorough man, Mr. Private Detective. And you seem to be a very nosy one. What do you want? To help Julia, nothing else. But here's a postcard that came for her this morning. It was mailed in L.A. yesterday. Yeah? Dear Julia... Tried to reach you at Santa Barbara 1181, both yesterday and today, but got no answer. And am leaving. I'm leaving town tomorrow. As one little girl who fled life in Haven, Kansas, to another, I would have enjoyed seeing you again. For a bit before I moved on to who knows where. And Santa Barbara 1181, that the number here? Yeah. It's Julia's private business phone. Well... What do you think, the postcard any help? Possibly. Tell me, Ruby, why didn't you show this to Mr. Drum? I forgot about it until just now. You're a liar. Well, it's on account of the postcard was delivered here to the cottage. Which is no man's land for you? Yeah, sort of. Mr. Drum doesn't like people who work for him mixing socially with each other. Well, maybe a sweet kid like Julia hasn't got any use for the passes you've been making at her, huh? Hold it. I like Julia, and even if she don't go for me, anything I can do to help her, I still do, understand? Yeah, I understand. I'm not so sure I believe. Goodbye, Ruby. It was pushing five o'clock and still raining by the time I got back to L.A. and over to the novelty company. Once there, I presented the torn book of matches that I had found at Julia's cottage to a bald man with horizontal question marks for eyebrows and who, with the crinkle of a five-dollar bill, tore himself away from his racing form long enough to check the files for a set of maroon and gold initials that had a V in the middle. And it was six o'clock before I had the answer, which was E-V-E. And they weren't initials, but the front name of Mrs. Eve Bentley, who lived in a villa at the Swank Sunset Terrace Apartments. And according to the gentleman who said he knew his oats, was a very classy filly. An hour later, I was at Mrs. Bentley's front door, and while I made with the chimes and waited, I wondered just how much a guy who loves the ponies could know about women. But when the door opened, I had my answer. Yes? What is it? Mrs. Eve Bentley wasn't beautiful, but she was everything else, including a shimmering yard of gold hair piled high on her head and held in place by a knot of pearls that no Boy Scout ever tied. Her face was wide blue eyes and open red lips on a backdrop of soft, fair skin. She wore a black silk jersey dress that must have been sprayed on. <laughs> she smiled when I said my name was Philip Marlowe and that I wanted to talk. Talk about what, Mr. Marlowe? Julia Perry. Ever hear of her? No, I haven't. Hmm. So I'll try again. What do you know about Ann somebody from Haven, Kansas? Absolutely nothing. 
this uh, torn book of matches says otherwise. I found them in Julia Perry's cottage. Julia Perry's missing. I'm a private detective who was hired to find her, and the matches turned out to be yours. Now, may I come in? Why? Why, yes. Thanks. Now, Mrs. Bentley, maybe we ought to start all over. No, I... wait just a minute, Mr. Marlowe. Mm-hmm. I may be able to help you. Did this uh, uh, Julia Perry deal in perfumes? That's right. Now, how did you know that? Because I just remembered something. And now I'm sure I can explain why my matches showed up where just they Just a did. minute, just a minute. You know, whenever I'm talking to a beautiful woman, somebody's always creeping around in the kitchen. Who is it this time? Oh, really, Mr. Marlowe. There's a storm outside and there are windows and trees. You put those three things together, that noise could have been a branch scratching on a glass pane. Or somebody with squeaky shoes and a lot of curiosity. Somebody like Mr. Bentley, for instance. Oh, oh, I doubt that, Mr. Marlowe. You see, Mr. Bentley's been dead now for three long years. Oh, yes. Well, you were saying something about the matches. Oh, yes. This uh, uh, Julia Perry must somehow have rather gotten hold of him through my fiancé, Marvin Whitaker. How does that figure? Like two and two. Marvin is in the perfume business. Ditto Julia. Also, I think he mentioned her name once. Said she was... Very clever for a girl who looked like somebody's kid sister. That fits all right. Where will I find said fiancé? At his favorite bar and grill. But won't you have a drink first, Mr. Marlowe? No, thanks, Eve. There, there isn't time. <clears throat> now the bar and grill. The blue boar. Blue which? Boar, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. It's a very English spot over on Wilshire, opposite Arthur Murray's studio. But uh, before you dash... Do you at least have a match? Yeah. Whole book of them, honey. Torn cover and all. And I want you to keep them. After all, they brought us together, didn't they? When I got outside, I postponed my run between the raindrops over to Wilshire Boulevard long enough to take a look behind the villa. And there, in a newly planted strip of clover lawn below Mrs. Bentley's kitchen window... I found something which was no surprise. Two clear prints of a man's shoe. But from there on out, I got nothing more than a lot of rain down the back of my neck. So ten minutes later, I dripped into my car and headed for the Blue Boar and Eve Bentley's gentleman friend. I located Marvin Whitaker, a handsome, hale fellow well met, in a white turtleneck sweater and wiring breeches. Behind a hot rum toddy in a corner booth that was pictures of steeplechase mounts against newly antique mahogany. And when I told him that I was looking for Julia Perry, he flashed a lot of glistening teeth at me, insisted that I join him in a warming glass of spirits, and started to talk, gesturing all the time with a riding crop. Why, yes, old man, I know Julia Perry. In fact, almost did some business with her today. You mean you were supposed to meet Julia someplace? That's right. At 1881 Selma Avenue, to be precise. But she called me this morning and postponed the whole transaction. Indefinitely. Could you stop projecting long enough to tell me why? She didn't say. Of course, it's of no bother to me on a day like this. No sane man should be any farther away from a toddy than we are right now. So drink up, old boy. It'll do you a world of good. Yeah, yeah, I bet it will. Look, Mr. Whitaker, one more question. Did Julia ever speak of a girlfriend named Ann? Someone she knew years ago in Kansas? No, I don't believe she did, Marlowe. Matter of fact, Julia never talked of anything but perfumes. Now drink your drink, fellow, before it's chilled through. Thanks, but no thanks, old bean. I do have to run, really. It was a 20-minute drive to the address on Selma, and the rain had stopped by the time I got there. The place was one of those once-upon-a-time rooming houses that had been partitioned off into a couple of dozen two-by-four cubbyholes, just big enough for the very small businessman to fill his fountain pen in. When I got to the door and asked the scrubwoman, who was a lot of wild red hair around two pop eyes for Julia Perry, I knew I was moving in the right direction, because the lady standing in front of me was anything but calm. And more important, she had just heard a pistol shot from the back of the house. Yes, that's right. A pistol shot not over two minutes ago. I'm sure that Perry girl had something to do with it. Because when I come from inside, I saw her rush out down these steps. Did she say anything? I don't know. She was gone out of sight before I could open my mouth. Mm. But I know it was her on account of that plaid coat and little hat she wears. Yeah, yeah. Now, which room is hers? Come on. Well, that one there with the light showing under the door. Mm-hmm. But it's locked. She won't be able to get in. I just tried. Well, we'll try again for luck. It's not the best lumber. Believe me. This is terrible. Nothing like this has ever happened to me. 
in. Yeah. A dead one at that, Granny. Do you know who it is? Uh-huh. On the mud and clover grass on the bottom of his shoes, I tag him as a guy who was looking in a lady's kitchen window about an hour ago. But from that purple scar on his chin, I can do even better than that. The name Granny is Ruby, a guy I thought was still in Santa Barbara. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, given clues, even the newest of Philip Marlowe fans can deduce the characters in CBS's great new early Sunday evening comedy lineup. The washboard leads you to the one and only Spike Jones. The bumblebee? Well, of course, that's for America's most famous non-virtuoso violinist, Jack Benny, who follows Spike Jones on CBS. The two A's, Amos and Andy, who are heard on CBS immediately following Jack Benny. So it's really no mystery at all why millions of Americans now stay tuned to CBS on Sunday nights for these three superb comedy shows in succession. Spike Jones and Amos and Andy over most of these same CBS stations, and Jack Benny over them all. And now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Black Halo. Ruby's body sprawled on the floor, and the girl in the plaid raincoat running away from it meant one thing. Julia Perry's trouble was important, like life, but more like death. A half-sneer was congealed on Ruby's face, and his eyes turned waxy, still held a look of mild surprise. I wasted some breath telling the scrubwoman not to touch anything, and then I put in a call to my overweight client in Santa Barbara. He was glad to hear from me at first. Marlowe! Well, now, I didn't expect a call from you this soon. You sure work fast, don't you, lad? Have you found her? Have you located Julia? Not quite. She's about five minutes ahead of me. Incidentally, Mr. Drum, she works fast, too. What do you mean by that? Let me ask the questions, huh? Number one, what was your leg man Ruby doing in L.A. tonight? Uh, Ruby? Yeah. Why, I, I sent him in to pick up some medicine for me. Why? Come on, Drum, you can talk straighter than that and you better. I just found Ruby dead. Dead? Ruby's dead? Uh, what happened to him, Marlo? He was shot. So forget the gags and tell me why he was snooping around. All right. I didn't trust you. No. It's my policy to trust nobody until he proves himself. I sent Ruby in to follow you and check on your progress. That was brilliant. You only made three mistakes. First, I don't need to be checked on. Second, you got your man killed. And third, you forced Julia's hand. Because it was Miss Perry herself who pulled the trigger on Ruby. Julia? I... Marlo, I don't believe that. Which proves nothing, Mr. Drum, but skip it. Tell me, do you know a man named Marvin Whitaker? Whitaker? Yeah. No, should I? Well, he says he's in the perfume business. I know everybody on the coast who bought more than two bottles of perfume at one time in the last 40 years, and I don't recall that name. I, I think the man must be a liar. So do I. Thanks for the help. And, Drum, if you've got any more expendable flunkies around, keep them out of my hair. I'll call you when I've got something. I called Homicide next and told Detective Lieutenant Ibarra where to find the body and who was responsible for it being in that dead condition. When the question of why came up, I admitted I was still shooting blanks. Oh, I told him about the razzle-dazzle Whitaker had handed me and named the Blue Boar on Wilshire as my next stop. Ibarra said he'd call me there, and when I got to the entrance of the place, I saw Whitaker, draped in a trench coat that involved enough cloth to rig a four-masted schooner, standing in the anteroom, impatiently smacking his leg with that riding crop. <laughs> he looked positively dashing. Question was, which way? Hiya there, Marlowe. Hey, old boy, you look upset. Anything wrong? I may be upset, Whitaker, but you're the one that's going to spill. First, are you leaving or coming back? I'm just leaving. Been here all the time since I talked to you? That's right, you see. My coat is perfectly dry. It stopped raining half an hour ago. <laughs> well, well, you see, if I'd been outside, I would have known that. But why this third degree, Marlowe? What's up? It's a long story. Maybe we better sit down and talk it all over from the beginning. Oh, I'm afraid I can't. Not just now. I, uh, I've got a date. She'll keep. Uh, not this one. It's something, uh, something rather special. Special, huh? Like Eve Bentley? Now, look here, old boy. You're prying into my personal affairs. Whitaker, I'll rip the lid clear off your personal affairs if necessary to get a clean answer out of you. Now, what do you really know about Julia Perry? I told you once. Are you implying that I'm a liar? At least that. For instance, who puts out a mirror? Come on, Whitaker. It's a well-known fragrance. Why, uh, I, uh, 
I don't recall offhand. That's strange, because any woman knows Amir's a Dana perfume. Just what are you trying to prove by all this? That it's a perfume dealer you stink. And try this for size. When I got to that address you gave me, I found a fresh corpse there with a bullet hole in it. A murder? Yeah, and your routine was pat, brother. So before homicide starts combing out the snags in your story, you better untangle it yourself right now. You lied to me. Now, why'd you do it, Whitaker? Why the double talk? All right, Marlowe, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this! Oh! It was as quick as a wounded cat. The riding crop slashed across my face even before I'd realized it moved. And by the time the red light stopped dancing in my eyes, Marvin Whitaker was gone. I turned as the head waiter walked up to me. He studied the hot red welt rising on my face for a moment and then murmured discreetly that if my name was Marlowe, I was wanted on the phone. It was Lieutenant Ibarra. Marlowe, you can stop beating the brush for Julia Perry. We found her. You did? Where is she, Ibarra? She's out in the alley here, behind the Beechwood Plaza Hotel, Marlowe. Exactly eight floors down from the window of her room. She fell through the glass roof above the rear entrance. Oh. It's not pretty. Oh. She explained the whole thing, including that Ruby guy's murder in a note we found in her room. I'll, I'll be right over, Ibarra. Okay, don't hurry. The old story, Marlowe, and Drum finally got around to trusting her. He practically gave her his business. It was too much temptation. Mm-hmm. She'd been stealing from him in a big way for almost a year. Her note says... And she decided to run for it when she knew she couldn't hide the thefts any longer, huh? That's right. That ruby caught on some way and she killed him, but I guess murder was too rich for her blood, so she came back here, thought it over, and then checked out. Yeah. All she left behind was a little plaid raincoat and a purse over there. Hey, she was wearing a dinky hat, too, Ebar. Did you find that? Mm-hmm. Come over here to the window, Phil. See, down there on that canopy, that little black circle, mm-hmm. that's her hat. I sent Mooney down to get it. Can't leave any loose ends around, you know. Yeah. That light, Lieutenant? Oh, sure. Here you are. Thanks. Hey, what happened to you? That welt on your face, Phil. Oh, I backed that horsey liar named Whitaker into a corner, and he slapped his way out with a riding crop. And speaking of loose ends, if I ever catch up with that... Hmm? Ibarra, where did that stuff on the dresser come from? Well, this out of the pockets of Julia's plaid coat. Why? But that's impossible unless... Holy smoke. That's why Whitaker lied to me. Hey, where are you going with that, Phil? Come back here. I got to check on something, Ibarra, and keep your notebook handy. If I'm right, this deal is still wide open. All the way from the suicide's room in the Beechwood Plaza, out to the widow's villa in the Sunset Terrace, my mind juggled a jumble of facts trying to beat them into a brand new pattern. A pattern that had to include an object Ibarra had found in the pocket of that plaid raincoat. It almost made sense. I needed just a little more. Well, when I turned into the parking lot at the Sunset Terrace, rain began to fall again. Thin, cold rain. I walked to Eve Bentley's door and pressed the bell. Just as I expected, it was Marvin Whitaker, unsmiling and nervous, who answered the door. I didn't give him a chance to think. I just swung hard. Okay, horseman, that squares us up. Come on, heavy, roll over. Let's see if you're carrying a gun. Okay, no gun. Now, be a good boy, Whitaker, and you'll make out all right, but one funny wiggle out of you and I'll crack your skull. It's a promise. Do you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I heard you. All right. Now, where's Eve? Is she here? Uh, find out for yourself, Marlowe. I'm through. Fair enough. But just so I'm not talking through my hat, I'll take a look in her closet first. She won't be in there, I guarantee. No, but her future may be. Well, let's see. It's got to be in here someplace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is probably it. Brown cloth coat, as chic as a pair of hobnailed boots, and still damp. And the label says the B.H. Company, Haven, Kansas. That does it. I've got it all now, and my chivalry just died. Where is she, Whitaker? Where's Eve? Right here, Marlowe. Uh, Uh-oh, don't try that. I guess you really do have it figured out, haven't you? Yes, Eve, I have. Sorry it turned out this way, because you had your points as Eve and as Julia. Don't put it in the past tense, Marlowe. As Eve Bentley, my life is just beginning, and now I've got everything I ever wanted as Julia Perry. Then you're Julia Perry. I was, Marvin. She still is, Whitaker. At least that's what the bailiff will call it in court. There won't be any court, Marlowe. Oh, I'm afraid there will, baby. 
You're twice a killer now, and both for the same reason, remember? First Ruby, because he saw you as Eve. And the girl you pushed out of the hotel window, who was no doubt Anne, your old chum from the hometown. She must have seen you posing as Eve, too. All right, Marlo. Anne ran into me by accident and ruined everything. I had no choice. I promised her money and then told her to go to my room at the Beechwood Plaza and wait for me. Eve, I, I can't believe this. It can't be true. Yes, Marvin, it is true. Darling, I didn't want this mess. I'd have left town this morning as I intended if sweet, sly little Anne hadn't seen me. I tried to get rid of you the easy way, Marlo. When I sent you to Marvin, the Selma Street address he gave you should have led you to the end of Julia Perry. Is that why you phoned me and told me to lie to Marlo? Yes, Marvin. I was going there to write my suicide note and use the stock room for my disappearing act. But Ruby caught me, and after that I had to work fast. But it's all right now. It all worked out perfectly. They were the only two who knew besides you, Marlo. Aren't you forgetting little Marvin here? Forgetting him? Oh, no, Mr. Marlowe. Marvin's the one person I can count on. That's what you think. You don't get me mixed up in this. Marvin. I bargained for an heiress, not a murderess. Are you dirty load? All right, then. I'll use this gun on you, too, because I'm getting out of here and no one's going to stop me. But you're right between us, Eve. You can't get us both. He's right, baby. You're not good enough to get us both. And killing just one of us isn't going to solve anything. What are you saying? <laughs> it's been a long night, baby. You just couldn't tell when you were late. <laughs> you want any more of this coffee, Marlowe? No, it's sludge, Lieutenant. I wonder what Julia Perry uses for a heart. You know, she planned the thing for six months when she first set herself up as Eve Bentley. Mm. And it probably would have... Must check now? Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Probably would have worked if everything hadn't closed in on her. Yeah, a friend, Anne, from Kansas, Ruby the leg man. And you with that torn book of matches. Mm. Incidentally, that was pretty fast figuring up in the hotel room there, Marlowe. Oh, not so fast, Ibarra. I knew Eve had those matches because I left them with her. So when you found the same matches in the pocket of Julia's plaid coat, it figured Julia almost had to be Eve. And that left Anne to furnish the body for the suicide. Yeah. You know, I wasn't so sure about that until I found the brown coat with a Haven, Kansas label in Eve's apartment. Yeah. Well, I'd better wait on back to the office, Phil. Look at that rain come down. Think it'll ever stop? I don't know. I doubt it. Oh, by the way, uh, here, it's her hat. Mooney finally got it down off that hotel canopy. Maybe you'd like it for a souvenir. Yeah. The millinery people call it a halo hat. Good night, Marlo. I sat there a while after Ibarra left, looking at the rain in the street and the cold coffee in front of me and Julia's little round halo on the table. And finally, I got up and went outside. Dirty water scudded along the gutter and gurgled thickly into the sewer drain at the corner. For a minute, I caught a glimpse again of the girl I'd figured Julia Perry to be when I went through her cottage in Santa Barbara. Yeah, that girl was an angel. When I finally caught up with her, a halo turned out to be black, jet black, inside and out. I dropped a little hat into the gutter and watched it go as far as the drain at the corner. And then I went home. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitz. Featured in the cast were Joan Banks, Paul Fries, Peter Leeds, Jack Crucian, and Lois Corbett. Lieutenant Detective Abar is played by Jeff Corey. The special music was by Richard O'Ron. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... A startled corpse, a blue-eyed woman, and a cryptic message scrawled by a dingy man with the pieces of a Chinese puzzle that wouldn't fit together. 
until I found out what was deadly about the orange dog. You'll find a whole hour of fun, variety, music, and thrills on Sing It Again tonight and every Saturday, for it's heard over most of these same CBS network stations. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money. 